0: let start off our evening with a pop quiz. I hope you're ready. I know a few of you guys are a little far removed from school, but you are never too old for a pop quiz. So you don't have to take anything out, um, or you can if you want to. Cliff has volunteered to grade any scores, and they'll be mailed to you during the week. But I have one question I want to ask you. I actually gave you a few days to think about it if you got your visions this week. You ready? Who is Jesus? It's not really a curveball, is it? Who is Jesus? If you think about this today, this is probably one of the most important questions you could ask anyone, right? Who is Jesus? This is particularly important for us because we are a Jesus people. Whenever the early disciples were running around and making a mess of things in the Roman Empire, they were identified as Jesus people, the Christ ones. And so understanding who Jesus is is a central piece to our identity, right? And also, this is a question that constantly haunts the Gospels. Um, Jesus asked his disciple this, um, one of uh, Cliff's favorite passages in Matthew 16, and who do you say that I am? After going and seeing what everyone thought, Jesus turns the question on his disciples and says, who do you say that I am? In the Gospels, right, people are constantly misidentifying jesus he is a prophet he's going to be king most thought that he was just this nuisance that needed to be dealt of for messing everything up now this question is central to our passage tonight which is going to be hebrews 1 1 through 4 so if you have a bible I recommend for you to go and turn there because this question is really important as the christians start to face persecution if you remember or if you're here with us last time that I, I went through the beginning of this passage, the Christian church is starting to experience persecution from the Romans. And the big thing that's going on here is that you can see in this text later that they're starting to lose their homes. Um, they're losing their property. Some of them, as we've already seen, are losing their lives. And yet the Jewish Christians, who this letter is written towards, the to the Hebrews as we know it, they face a very unique and interesting situation. While the rest of the church is being persecuted, the Jews have this unique temptation. Do we go back? Do we, as Jewish Christians, can we just slip back into Judaism to pull ourselves out of all of the suffering? And can we just let this wave going across the church just pass right over us? But why would this be a temptation? Because if they change their definition of who Jesus is, the persecution will stop at some point, their understanding of Jesus would start to change by the circumstances around them. Just think about this. As Romans are starting to kick them out of their homes and seize their property, does the good news start to sound like bad news? Or if you think about loved ones, friends, sons, daughters, parents being thrown into prison, and being thrown into prison by your friends, sons, daughters, husbands, it can start to ask questions about if Jesus is really all that he said that he was, why is this happening? Imagine trying to meet, as will probably happen often, as our little church, opening up God's word and trying to sing when the aftermath of persecution happened outside of town. Where's the joy in singing when those things happen? As the world starts to press in around them who Jesus is and what he has done, starts to get drowned out you know the same thing can happen to us that whenever life and suffering comes into our lives it can cause us to question our view of Jesus I wonder if you can relate to this tonight go back to that question who is Jesus now you don't have to give me the Sunday school answer that's fine but if you're honest with yourself who do you think he is has your view of Jesus changed recently at all Are there circumstances in your life that are starting to shape what you believe and what you don't believe about him? Is it starting to drown out Jesus and his importance in your life? Is it the loved one you lost? Or is it a broken relationship, a medical diagnosis, dissatisfaction just with life? Maybe it's a job, a serious trial you're going through. Or maybe the opposite's happening. You really, when you think of Jesus, you don't feel anything. That's actually the problem. That when you look at Jesus, you don't see this connection between what, how what he has done in the past applies to you. And when these things happen, these trials of life, we are all are tempted to start drifting. So for the Jewish Christians and for us, the author of Hebrews, he pulls out the big guns to start with. And knowing that all temptation tries to challenge our trust in who Jesus is, he begins with this glorious and pointed reminder of who Jesus is, and why he deserves our allegiance and worship, regardless of anything else that's happening in our lives. Let's read this text. Hebrews 1, 1 1-4. Hear the word of the Lord. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He So as we come to our passage, these first four verses are are foundationally crucial for how we're going to approach the rest of this book. There actually are two arguments that the author is trying to make here. One, that God has spoken. We talked about that a month ago in verses one through two and a half. And then the second point is that God has spoken through his son. If you look at these verses though, they're so dense, aren't they? I made the joke that I bit off way too much because there's so much here to talk about in the limited time that we have. But if you look at it, if you look at the second half after he says, last days he's spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir. Starting there, it is dense and thick with theological troop on t- truth on top of theological truth. We see things like Jesus is the heir of all things, that he is the radiance of God and that he is currently sitting, sitting at the right hand of God. So why start with all of these dense theological truths? Because if you're watching someone's faith start to fall apart, as the author of Hebrews is in in light of all the persecution, it's like you're watching a house starting to fall under the pressure of a storm. And the logical place to start your diagnostic checks is going to be that foundation, right? What is the status of this foundation? Is it compromised? Is the house built upon a solid foundation? Christian, what's our foundation? It is both the truth that God has spoken to us, which we get his word, and a right understanding of who Jesus is. So our section for this evening, which is 2B, which is just a way for us to cut two in half and talk about it through four, is really just one giant run-on sentence explaining who Jesus is to underscore the importance of a right understanding of him. It is layer on top of layer, on top of layer of these deep truths that then avalanche into our hearts to help us have assurance of what? That Jesus is worth building all of our lives around. And it's on top of this truth after truth after truth that it knocks the breath out of us with a sense of awe for who he is. Because a biblical and deep understanding of who Jesus is puts everything else in our lives back in their proper place, as well as it overwhelms us with proofs which show us that Jesus is worth following, even if it means us losing everything for Him. Here's the main idea for our passage tonight. If you want to go ahead and write that down, the main idea is this: Christian, your faith is centered on Jesus Christ. So know, believe, love, and cherish this Jesus. Let me read that again: Christian, your faith is centered on Jesus Christ. So know, believe, love and cherish this Jesus. To get us back up to speed with this text really quickly, the author of Hebrews is arguing in the first and second verses that God has spoken now directly, completely, and personally to us. That's what we talked about last time. That's available for anyone who wants to go look at that. The main thing we take away from this is that God has spoken his word to us. and That means that we, as Christ's people, have to treat it as God's word. That's a pretty clear argument there. But the fact that God has spoken to us is supported by the dignity of his messenger. We're going to look at this portion of scripture and we're going to break this down into two parts that are very simple for us to understand. You have a series of almost four statements of who Jesus is as fully God. And then you have four other sentences that you can take from it that talk about Jesus as fully man. Let's start with the fact that Jesus is fully God. So our verse begins with these four, if you look at, um, looking in verse two, whom he appointed the heir of all things is really gonna be where we start. It begins with these four descriptions to underscore his divinity. The fact that Jesus did not come into existence when he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. If one were to write a biography of him, you don't just start at that point. No, he has eternally existed as the second person of the Trinity the Son of God, the Logos. And he has been active in creating so much in the world from the beginning. So when we see Jesus come onto the scene, or we know that Jesus is now in heaven or at the right hand of the Father, his biography is not limited to just what was accomplished in the flesh. It's important in understanding his role and all that he has accomplished. So here are four titles for us to think about from this text about Jesus' divine nature. Number one, Jesus is heaven's heir. Jesus is heaven's heir. Take a look at your text. And first in first and verse two, we see that God appointed Jesus as the heir of heaven, whom he appointed the heir of all things. When the father was creating everything, all things, nothing falls out of that. It is all things. He was creating it for someone he created everything in the world. Think about this. He created everything in the world for Jesus. He was planning on giving it to the divine son. It's planned from all of creation. Everything was destined to be Jesus's. Let's stop and take a look at that word, all things, in verse two. What do you think he means? All things, everything. Now, this isn't a truth that's necessarily out there, but it's something that's also very personal to us because, in the same way that Jesus is to inherit all things, he inherits all things in our life, every aspect of our life. Think about your life. Think about everything in your life. It is all a gift to you that was purposed for Jesus. Christ is the owner, you are the steward. Think about your house or your job, or your health, or your money, or your passions, or your time. All of this is on loan to you. Jesus is the heir, and he is the owner of everything in your life. Even if you're not a Christian, it's all for him. And if he is the heir of all things, then we are obligated to give him everything, and to offer him everything in our lives. You know how we run into a problem with this? All of us have a deep sense of entitlement. There's a lot of talk today about human rights being made in the image of God and things that all people deserve. There's a sense in which that's true, but there's also a sense in which this the statement, I deserve everything because I am human, is also an entitled statement. Because from this perspective, we don't naturally earn or deserve anything. You know what happens in sin in our hearts when God gives us everything, anything? The moment and it's in our hands, We take our vice grips and we say, mine. This is mine. This started the moment that we were born. My daughter Riley is here. I did not have to teach her to be possessive. Not at all. Oh, she's gone. Never mind. But she's over there. She's probably stealing toys from someone else at this moment. So, us as adults, though, we have just learned socially acceptable ways of being entitled. We say things like, I earned this. I worked hard for this. I spent my money well. I sacrificed. I deserve my health and success, happiness and pleasure. And when these things are taken away from us, right, how easy it is for us to look to God and say he's unfair. God, you you owe me this. You You can't take that away from me. Let me ask you a question that Paul once asked. Think about this. What do you have in your life that you did not receive? Think about it for a second. This is from... 1 Corinthians 4.70, if I want to go back to it later. What in our lives do we have that we did not receive? Answer, nothing. There is nothing in our lives that is ultimately for us, is it? It's all for God and it's all for Jesus. So when we lose something that we think is very valuable to us, it was never ours really to begin with. And even what the Bible says is that even the breaths in our lungs are a gift from God. If, it's, if it all belongs to Jesus... It's ultimately up to him to what he does with it, right? If he decides to bless you this way or to take something away from you, he has the ability to do so because it was his to begin with. Yet the good thing is that Jesus is good and he cares for us and he loves to give us good things. And if he is truly working all things for our good, there are times when he might decide that what we want isn't best for us right now. There are so many times in our lives when God doesn't give us the things we don't desperately want because he would rather ha- us be holy than happy. In this portion of the Beatitudes in Luke's gospel, I love what Jesus says. He says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, Luke 12, 32. If it pleases God to give us everything that we have. Hasn't Jesus already given us everything that we have though? Because he gave us himself. He has given us eternal salvation and the kingdom. And he has not forgotten us in light of our sin. So, friend, don't let these material and temporary things in your heart cause entitlement, that you become bitter towards God. First, that was the first point that Jesus is the heir of all things. Second, Jesus is Earth's creator. That's, and we see next in this text that Jesus is the one in whom all the world was created, through whom also God created the world. I want to draw an interesting observation from the text. You see that word world there? That word world there? It actually is the word for ages, which is really interesting. This means that Jesus didn't just create the world, but he created the ages. He created everything in existence. Time itself. It is Jesus, he is the one through whom God is created Everything. And that also means that he has the eternal power in himself to create. He is, has in his being creative power. Think about then the absolute mystery that we're gonna go experience in a few weeks of Christmas. How God became man. Isn't this the mystery of the incarnation? That infin- infinite glory and power became a vulnerable infant? And how an infant... An infant who people would say are the most helpless, um, procreated beings in all of creation. They can't do anything for themselves. Ha- how infants have the power of creation in Jesus. Listen to how one hymn puts it. Come we to welcome Emmanuel, the king who came with no crown or throne. Helpless he lay, the invincible, maker of Mary, now Mary's son Maker of Mary, now Mary's son. The paradox of Christianity, isn't it? Now, this also makes sense of Jesus' earthly ministry if you think about it. What is he doing in much of his earthly ministry? He is doing creative powers in and creative works in creation. He is exercising the ability that he had to create the world in all of his ministry. He is fixing that which was broken. He is healing bodies and he is raising the dead. This is nothing new to Jesus. We don't look at him and say, wow, that's... We do look at him and say that, wow, that's amazing. But that shouldn't surprise us because he created it all in the first place. He has this power from the beginning of the word. And it's interesting that you see Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.17. What does he say? That if you're in Christ, you are a new creation. That Jesus is restoring the broken world. Do you know that when we go to, pray, to Jesus in prayer... Or that when we know that Jesus is now dwelling in us by his spirit, you're accessing the one who has power over all of creation. And right now, he is in the process of making all of his people new through his Holy Spirit. So if you're a Christian, you have been made new. You have been given a new heart. And Christ is the ultimate redeemer and restorer of all things. And as Revelation 22 says, he will make all things new. Third point to talk about. Jesus is God's reflector. What do we see here? In verse 3 he says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is God's reflector. So when we see Jesus, we see God. And when we we see Jesus, we see the Father. Whatever you see Jesus doing in the Bible, you are seeing a picture of the Father because he only does what, what the Father wants, right? He has the exact same nature as the Father. There's these two images I want to draw out for you. The word radiance actually is unique. It doesn't appear, I think this is one of the only times it appears in the New Testament. The root of this word, though, is the idea of dawn or the morning. And when someone watches a beautiful dawn before the sun becomes visible, right, what do you start to see? You start to see the light and the colors mixing with the darkness. And you start to see the announcement of the sun coming up into the world. So as the sun is, is coming up from the horizon, you start to see the, the heavens start to just Give all these beautiful pictures and all these beautiful colors. What, what's the image here? And the fact that in Jesus, he is the radiance, he is that glory of the Father. In the same way that the sun comes up and the heavens are announcing its presence with all this glory. Whenever we see Jesus, he is that picture of the glory of the Father. And when we look at Jesus, in the same way you look at a beautiful sunrise, you see all these miraculous and glorious pictures of what Jesus is doing as this glorious picture of the Father. The second thing I want us to take a look at is the idea of a stamp. That's what the exact imprint is. So it's common for kings and rulers to have stamps that they would sign their authority. A stamp has one rule. It leaves an exact imprint, right? If a a stamp is not leaving its exact imprint, something is wrong. But if we look at Jesus, what is he? He is the exact imprint of the Father. Whatever we see Jesus doing, we see the Father doing because he is the exact nature, point for point, of God. Every attribute assigned to God in Scripture is assigned to the Son. Well, the last point for the divine nature, we see that Jesus is creation's sustainer. What a powerful statement we see in verse three. Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Think about this for a second. Gravity as a universal law right now is still in place because it's obeying Jesus. The seas right now do not consume the land because of Jesus's word. The sun gives light. You and I are held together and not floating around because all of creation bows to its king. Think about, it, look around this room right now. Everything in all of creation, because it is hold, held together, shows Jesus' authority. Why? Because it is obeying him. I think this is an interesting point to make because to our knowledge, there is only one substance or one creation and all of that was created that does not totally submit to God's word. What is that? It's humans. It really is us. Think about it. God upholds the the world by his power, forces beyond our control, yield to Christ. What does he do to us? He speaks. He speaks to you. God doesn't just give us commands which we respond like robots. He gives us a word in which he calls us to read and to understand and respond. Why? Think about this. Why doesn't everyone just believe the gospel? Why doesn't everyone respond to God? Now, part of this is the nature of the fact that God created us with, with free will, as people say it. We have, some, in some degree, personal independence, distinct from creation. God is sovereign, the Bible teaches. Human, humanity has free will. Yet yeah, our free will is never ultimate. Think about this. God gives us autonomy and freedom, but he's expecting a return for his glory. Because God gives every person free will so they might freely submit it to Jesus. That God might get glory from free beings, finding Jesus eternally satisfying and worthy of all their submission. Christ does not command our allegiance. What does he say? Come, follow me. Friends, let us learn from creation. As all of creation yields to its king and creator, so ought we, so ought we. We're going to transition to the second part of this verse. Those the first four um, pieces that talk about Jesus' divine nature. The next four are going to talk about Jesus' hum, um, human identity. So Jesus is fully God and fully man. And they reflect really upon what Jesus accomplished in his flesh. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And because of that, these are four identity pieces that they can be ascribed to Jesus' nature. First, Jesus is the Christian's savior. Think about this for a second. The text reads, after making purifications for sin. This is just a shorthand way for them to talk about the whole um, identity of Christ's redemptive work. Because humanity needs a savior to deal with the sin problem, right? All of humanity is in rebellion against God and left to itself without hope. And Jesus becoming man, he identifies with us and he pays the penalty which is the Father's eternal wrath towards humans. All that went to Christ, he went to the cross and paid the penalty for your sin and for my sin. He was raised from the dead because as a righteous person, he could not die. And so he did not deserve its penalty. But it's typical for a lot of evangelicals to focus solely upon his work of atonement, of him paying the penalty for our sin. But there's another way that this verse references what Jesus has done. And it's a a way to think about Jesus' priestly work. And it comes in the word purification. What's the idea behind purification? It's impurity. It is is cleanliness. You can be guilty or not guilty, but you also can be pure and impure. Because whenever whenever we fell with Adam's sin, it's not that we were just guilty. We were corrupted. In the same way that we are alienated from God, left to ourselves because of disobedience, we are unable to dwell in God's presence because of sin. And this is the whole picture of the sacrificial system in the temple in the Old Testament. When God tries to dwell with Israel, what happens? You have a holy God with a sinful people. There's naturally fireworks that are gonna happen. So you have these temples and these systems, and they're trying to protect a holy God and a sinful people, but it rarely works. What does this point to? You? That when Jesus comes. One of the things that he does is that he purifies us. And his death, he gives, he makes us pure. He, pure, we, we undergo purification. He makes us holy, that we can be like him. There's a psalm that asks a really important question. It's Psalm 24. It says, who can ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in the holy place? What man can dwell with God? What man, is any person from the Bible in able to dwell with God because of sin? No. Can any of us dwell with God because of sin? No. It is, it is, this is the one who can dwell with God. It is he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Who is the one that has the clean hands and the pure heart? It is Jesus. How can you receive clean hands and a pure heart? Through faith in Jesus second point we talk about is that we see that Jesus is humanity's ruler. So it says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Where is Jesus now? Right now. He is in heaven, bodily, at the right hand of the Father, ruling over all of creation. We see this as we look through the book of Revelation, right, as you guys have been walking through with Cliff. He is the offspring of David who sits at the right hand of the Father. He is king. Think about this, the human nature, one who is like us, one who is our brother, is currently sitting at the highest exalted position in all of creation. You guys know what that means, particularly after the events of this week? That he is in control and he has authority over all things. The Bible teaches that all authority, in the same way we talked about as everything is given from God, it's a steward. Those in authority, it's a stewardship from God. It all has been given to him. Daniel 2.21 is a verse you might want to write down. It says that God, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets them up. Friends, God is in control. And Jesus sits on the most powerful seat in the universe. And some of us today might just need to take a deep breath. Let that quiet our souls. Also, really interesting. Have you ever thought about how Jesus' exaltation is an invitation? I don't know if you've ever thought about this before. The book of Ephesians begins with this glorious picture of all that God has given to us in Jesus. But there's a very interesting argument that's hidden in Ephesians 1 and 2. If you look for just a running start, um, he begins with this glorious explanation of all the glories for us. And then he goes into this prayer. And one of the prayers that he, he wants them to know is the power of God towards us in Christ. Then he says this in verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hands in the heavenly places. So Jesus, where is he? He is currently at that right hand in the heavenly places. But what does Paul say in Ephesians 2, 4 through 6? But God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with the heavenly places. We're in Christ Jesus. So what's the parallel? Jesus was raised, Ephesians 1. We are raised in Ephesians 2. This is true for us right now. As Jesus' humanity was raised, so our humanity is currently being raised in a spiritual way and in one day will be raised. And that means as Jesus rules creation, so will we. We are participants in that. Jesus' salvation is not just salvation, justification, It is exaltation and glorification for all of us. Don't miss that. Where do you want to be glorified in life? Where do you want to be exalted? There's no jockeying for position or power that can exalt you as high as Jesus. But he invites you to give your all to him and you can reign with him. Pursue Christ and you will be exalted and glorified in a kingdom greater than anything on earth. Third thing we see is that Jesus is the angel's superior. Now, why would the author of and, and, and author Hebrews go to angels? Because to the human eye, angels are the most glorious created beings out there. Their presence comes with a prepackaged equipment for a rock concert, lights, smoke, and loud noises, and the whole shebang. But have you ever noticed when an angel shows up, men and women just crumple to the ground? The first words of angels have to be, don't be afraid. Why? Because angels are terrifying. So why is this important? Because as angels are the most glorious beings one can imagine, what's better? The resurrected Jesus. That means that there is something ultimately more glorious than the angels. In the same way that Jesus' humanity was exalted and so is ours, that means that there's something more glorious for us. Jesus' glorification means that there's a bigger picture for us one day. This is a cool thought. The G- that the resurrected Christ And the glorified human body is more glorious than the angels. One day we will die and we'll go into the ground, but one day we will be resurrected. And as Jesus is superior, so will we be. Fourth and last thing of our points, is that Jesus is the universe's heir. What's the picture of this text? That Jesus is the heir of the universe? That he has inherited a greater name. If you remember back in um, a few sermons we preached ago... And we were talking about Genesis 12 and 15. What came up in the promise that was given to Abraham? You will have a great name. Now, what does that mean? That means that to have a great name is to have rulers and to have authorities. That means that Jesus' name is the highest and greatest authority in all of creation. And that the the marvelous thing about that is that we have access to that name, right? This is the name in which we were saved It's the name that can cast out demons and heal the sick and raise the dead. Anyone who calls on him will be saved. So Jesus, he is the highest authority in all of creation because he has the greatest name and control over it. Let's return to our pop quiz real quick. Who is Jesus? Jesus is heaven's heir, earth's creator, God's reflector, creation sustainer. I threw my thumb up, there you go. The Christian savior, humanity's ruler, creation superior, the universe is heir. Now there's a potential, here's a potential problem. Because when life circumstances, go back to our main point, when life circumstances challenge our faith, they seem to be screaming truths into our hearts. None of these can change how glorious Jesus is and what he has done for us. Nothing can compare to Jesus' glory as creator and redeemer. So what circumstances in your life right now are causing you to challenge your belief and your faith in Jesus? Who do you know right now who might be struggling with one of these things? Hear this from God's word though. The Bible never tells us that we ought to just deny suffering or it doesn't say that persecution is good. It says it's bad. It says you can be disappointed in life. It actually agrees with you, probably more than any of us would say in this room. But you know what it does? It doesn't leave us there because it acknowledges our suffering, and then it casts a more glorious vision of the true reality and what ultimately matters. Everything that challenges our faith ultimately fails in comparison. We understand who Jesus is, what he has done for us in the gospel, and where everything is heading. It's not that suffering doesn't hurt, that death isn't real, and it's, it's even in light of these things, knowing who Jesus is and what he has done, what's awaiting us, outweighs everything in our life. What does that leave us? We enter joyfully into death and suffering for glory. Let me say that again. We enter into death and suffering for glory. Isn't this the path of the cross? How did Jesus enter into his glory? Through suffering. How do we enter into glory? Through suffering in death. What's the reality for us? All of us are gonna die one day But what does Jesus' life teach us? We enter into death, and then we are glorified. You know, when we face things like death, it's not the end, is it? But it's a pathway to glory. How do we know this? It's exactly what happened to Jesus at the cross. He entered into death, and he was glorified. And as we face suffering and even death, this is how we are prepared and entered into God's glory. One of the most beloved books of of all time, and I'll end with this, is John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. The first book talks about Christian leaving the city of destruction and going to the celestial city. And the second book talks about his family, Christiana, and her sons and other people who have heard about Christian. They're making the same journey. Great story. I'd recommend it. It's basically an analogy of the Christian life um, through these characters. One character that's always stuck out to me is Mr. Despondency, which for those who do not know that word, it is a state of low spirits caused by lost hope or courage. So Mr. Despondency has a daughter, much afraid. As you can tell by their names, what do they do for most of the book? They are afraid and alone, doubting. They're once caught in this picture of doubting castle and held captive by giant despair. They get to the last steps of their journey, which is the banks of the river of death. But then they can see the celestial city on the other side. They can hear its songs. They can see its, its ceremonies. When each, there's this traveling company at this point, so when they get to the river, um, they each receive summons. It's their time to pass on and to move on. What does Mr. Despondency's letter say? Trembling man, these are to summon thee to be ready with thy king by the next Lord's day, to shout for joy for the deliverance from all thy doubtings. And this is one thing that struck to me ever since I first read this. When the time came for them to depart, Mr. Despondency and his daughter much afraid, they went to the brink of the river and the last words of Mr. Despondency were, farewell night, welcome day. And his daughter went through the river singing, it says, and none could understand what she said. Think about that. Farewell night, welcome day. Here's another character, what Mr. Steadfast said about the river and talking about it. This river has been a terror to many, yea. The thought of it also has often frightened me. But now methinks I stand easy. My foot is fixed upon that which the feet of the priests that bear the Ark of the Covenant stood while Israel was over the Jordan. The waters indeed are to the palate bitter and to the stomach cold. Yet the thought of what I am going to do and the conduct that, the conduct that awaits for me on the other side doth lie as the glowing coal at my heart. I see for myself now at the end of my journey, my toilsome days are ended. I am going now to see that head which was crowned with thorns and that face which was spit upon for me. I have formerly lived by hearsay and faith, but now I go where I shall live by sight and shall be with him in whose company I delight myself. His voice to me has been most sweet. His countenance, countenance I desired more than they that that have most desired the light of the sun. His word I did use to gather for my food and for antidotes for my fading. He has held me and he has kept me from mine iniquities. Yea, my steps hath he strengthened in his way. Friends, through Jesus' word, he's calling for all of us to look to him and to trust him for what he has done for us. He is promising for all of us that those who believe in him will not be abandoned, be overcome, but they will make it through the other side because as the hymn says it, he will hold us fast. Let us pray.